Welcome to a special release of the Reality Escape Pod. Today we are sharing with you one of our Patreon exclusive bonus episodes that is no longer exclusive to Patreon, at least just this time. It's from Season 3, Episode 2, when we interviewed Johanna Kolyonen. Johanna's episode was incredibly popular. I mean, we were blown away by how popular her episode was. And she talks about Nordic LARP and just about game design in general in such a brilliant way. And her entire episode was really a giant knowledge bomb. When we finished recording and we were ready to record the bonus episode, I had so many additional questions for her that this bonus episode is essentially like part two of the main episode, which is why we decided to bring it out for you guys to listen to. So if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do that before you listen to this. I promise everything will make a lot more sense. Every single episode that we produce of this show, we also make a Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. Most of the time, the guests join us Really, almost every time the guests join us. And they're like an hour long. So a lot of times people think bonus episodes are like short 50 minutes. No, these are hour long conversations and they're just really a joy to produce. We love making them. Yeah, they have a different vibe than our normal episodes do. They're a little bit more relaxed. We chat and banter a whole bunch more and we dig into a whole bunch of stuff that we may not always want out on the main feed. So if you like what we're doing and you can afford it, please consider supporting us and you can get more of our content in return as well as access to our Patreon discord. And finally, season four is coming soon this fall. Each episode, we're interviewing a guest from a different country and we have recorded half of the season already, and the guests are wonderful. So stay tuned for that. If you aren't subscribed, please subscribe. If you haven't left us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, please do that. We truly appreciate it, and we hope that you enjoy this bonus episode with Johanna. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod After Show. PG and I are joined by Johanna, our guest from this episode. Yeah, we're going to have a more casual chat and uh, yeah, just talk about experiences and and things that maybe we talked about in the episode and some things we didn't. So welcome back. Thank you. Can I say that I remembered the, a safety mechanic from Inside Hamlet that I didn't remember in the moment? Oh, yeah, go for it. Okay, so bullet time consent, we call it. So bullet time, as in like the matrix, like very slowly looking, moving. Uh, now, we're not doing literal bullet time, but what it means is like you can't opt out of something that's already happened. <laughs> so mm. so one of one way that you can use, uh, and again, like it's more, and I'm not actually now 100% sure we, we use it specifically in, in, um, in Inside Hamlet as a rule, but it's like an underlying principle, right? Is that escalate slowly, like signal what's going to happen. Because you're not actually trying, again, like you in a real world fight, of course, you would not want to signal where you're going to hit someone or something. But that's, we're not actually fighting. The characters are fighting. So, so if I, 
you know, I do big movements and very slowly, or I verbalize, I, I tell you, I threaten you with exactly the thing I'm going to do. And then I do it. And that gives you an opportunity to opt in or opt out from that using the mechanisms or backing away or, or like there are so, or just like, you know, there's so many things that you can do if you know what's coming. Uh, so just basically slow escalation allows also for, for real time consent and any kind of like jumping somebody or just like, yeah, like any kind of surprises when it comes mm -hmm. to interactions, not great. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is very sensible. So one of the things that I want to uh, share with people is how we met. I was at Up the Game. We were both at Up the Game. I think it was would have been like 2019, the before times. Johanna, you were giving your talk on LARP, and I watched, and my mind was pretty blown by what you were presenting. Later that afternoon, I was hosting a panel on innovation in immersive gaming, Without getting permission from any organizers or anything, I just walked up to you afterwards and said, hey, I'm moderating this panel and I really think you need to be on it. It's at this time on this stage. Will you please come? Great. <laughs> and, yeah. um, well, I mean, you consented. What else am I going to do at a conference? <laughs> I guess. It was such a strange experience. I think it has probably come up in the past on, on past bonus episodes, but um, the panel ended up being Heis from Dark Park in uh, in the Netherlands. We had Nick Moran from the UK, Andrew Preble from Escape My Room in New Orleans, who has not been a guest on this podcast yet, but he's sort of an inevitable guest. Uh, and then we had Cyril, who is um, the producer of um, Ubisoft's VR escape games. And then we added Johanna into, into the mix. And we were on this stage that was in this old industrial building that had no insulation and it was freezing cold outside and thus freezing cold inside. It felt like an ice box. They had to put blankets out on everybody's chairs. And so all of the panelists are like wrapped in blankets and still freezing. And it was probably not probably it was the, it was the most uncomfortable place you could have possibly had a panel. Everybody worked real hard and made it a decent panel, but I, I think it was a, a hard, hard place to connect with each other and, um, and with the audience because everything is a designable surface. Yes. Temperature is one of those that people overlook a lot for, for events. And actually we had a really interesting design insight specifically for inside Hamnet, by the way, uh, that we don't always talk about this stuff, but now that that, that, that production is basically retired, at least in its current form, it's an interesting factoid that on like, I want to say like the third year that we were there running it, uh, they suddenly couldn't find one of the radiators that used to be in the room that's the Queen's Boudoir, which is kind of a space where some of those like more... Um, like sensual type interactions often take place uh, or that's the the location has been designed so that it it's it encourages it, it like that stuff to be centered there um and uh, and because the radiator wasn't there the that the temperature in that room was just like a few degrees lower than the other spaces and nobody's gonna like it's a subconscious thing but nobody's gonna choose that place to take their clothes off <laughs> even a little so yeah. everybody is going to do that in some other room when it becomes a plot necessity for them to do that. And then suddenly it's basically, it's not a big, that was not a big set. So it's probably like some corner of the throne room. Suddenly there's some kind of vague, like sexy times 
possibly starting to happen. Like, and then, okay, I mean, there's a, there is this sort of like the kind of sort of the mad, like this death cult situation at the end of this event where like everything and anything goes because it's just madness right um because like then then somebody might be having sex over here and there's some suicide pact is happening over there or like because it's this kind of then it's this kind of mad like hellscape you know but that's not like the vibe way too early like things were kind of happening in the wrong places and and it was so again such a lesson because we feel like we're pretty good at this now thinking about like set design and how you you know, it's so important, like how many, you know, square feet and wh- how many seats do you have? If there are too many chairs, people are just going to sit around and talk. And it's not, you know, there are so many different le- levels of the set design. And there's always going to be something you overlook. And in this case, that was it. And then after that, I have been very careful at all site visits and location visits always to, to think about temperatures. And very often you visit another time of year than the actual production. And that's the thing. The other thing you always miss is acoustics. Like you forget to really think about what's going to happen with the sound environment when you put a hundred people in the space or whatever. But yeah, for the second run, like later that week, uh, they did find the radiator again and we put it back in and everything reverted to its normal distributions. Like, oh God, thank you. We haven't lost our touch. This was really just this freak occurrence. Yeah. I got to keep it hot and steamy. <laughs> yeah. And then again, maybe not too hot and steamy because you'd also like, it's, this is pacing, right? But it would be really cool if you could actually like make a temperature go up in a space to for a negotiation or for something like that to add pressure. That would be very cool. So I was actually wondering if you could walk us, if you could walk at least me through practically how do these LARPs work because I've never done one so you know and I have played tabletop role-playing there is a DM or a GM they they give they narrate the scenario and then a lot of times they will then say here's the scene what would you like to do you know so how does that play out in a um, LARP is there a narrator character there? Because you said everybody there. You don't. You said you don't have NPCs. So I guess I'm no. curious. Where, I mean, where sometimes you can use them. Sometimes. Well, the story is built into the situations and the characters and their interactions, right? So do we so, have a script as players? No. Well, yeah, no, not a script. So what you would have is you would have um, you would have a description of the of the world, as we call it still for traditional role-playing reasons, even though the world might be uh, contemporary times. So it's going to explain what do you need to know about, like, where are you? What is the context? What is the time? Uh, If it's like, what's what's the sort of minimum level of information you need to understand about, for instance, the political context or something like that to understand, you know, like next week, I'm going to, I'm actually going to play two LARPs in in November. I'm going to play one, which is set uh, at this, this sort of secret history type school that's going to be at a castle in Poland. It's set weirdly in Poland. Even though it's in the early '80s, that would be realistic. But whatever, it's a it's an elite uh, school in the Cold War in Poland for mostly Western students. Um, so that's just like it's, we're gonna wave our arms and accept that. And then what you need to know is that you are in real world 1982 or whatever it is. But in the context of this school, this is what like most of the stuff that's happening out in the real world that's in your character backgrounds, like your family comes from a place and all of that stuff. But really, what's relevant to these characters at this time is what's happening in this building. 
So there, there it would be like, what you know? How does the school work? What is your schedule? What is your what are your classes? Who are the people you go to school with? Who are your teachers? And you would need to know a fair amount of information about these people. That's a, like a school is a great environment because people know how to go to school, and literally you can follow a schedule. So so you the the structure of the event of the fiction will carry you along from place to place, basically. Um, but on the other hand realistically you kind of need to know who your classmates are so there's a fair amount of like negotiating and memorizing people a lot and things of homework like that. to do before you yeah, that one has a lot of homework and the other event i'm playing is is in finland and uh that's uh um, designed actually by johanna and maria peterson who we work with a lot but that's that's a, a personal project of theirs which is set at the final days of the of the romanov family or the, towards the end of the Tsarist regime before the Russian Revolution. So it's going to be in the 1910s and it's uh, about politics and religious cults. Uh, and then it's like, I don't know a lot of Russian history. So for me, I need to learn a little bit. So part of the design skill is how little information can we give like what is the minimum viable amount to make this playable, but so that we don't overwhelm people with information. But you'd get that. You'd get a description of who your character is. You'd get a dis description of who they know and what their, your relationships are more or less and what they want. Like what are they, they there to do? This is your character description will probably also say your function at this LARP or like your, if you have, if there's something that the kind of story machine needs you to do, um, and that could be either like uh, we kind of need you to to reach like by this time we need you to to reach this goal that would or even it could be a fate that could it could even be uh, you can do whatever you want that's consistent with the character otherwise but at midnight in at on Saturday you need to have a reason to be in this room that would be called a fate that would be like a fate design so there are some things that are, are predetermined but the well, normal way of like a task. So most yeah, people but, are given some type of task. Like, I, well, I guess yeah. I ask because open-ended... Normally it's an implicit task. Like, normally it would be like, well, this is what your character wants, and this is how, this is the environment. Go be this character in the environment and try to achieve what they want. And you guys don't have any certain plot points that you're... I guess you do have certain plot points you're trying to hit, and that's where the character tasks or fates come into play? Well, this is why it's difficult to talk about this sort of universally because because the, we, we talk about it's bespoke design. So so depending on what you want the event to do, how you want it to function, you would solve this differently. The design it would be different event to event, um, and that also means that's also why we th we think so much about onboarding because even I've played like Nordic Larps for twenty five plus years and I still can't take for granted that I know how this one's gonna like the next one's gonna work they need to teach me how to play this game but that's not weird like video games are also different the whole time and video games are also totally comfortable teaching me to play them every time so so it, that's still like okay um but in some way but normally uh like one way of doing it is that you write kind of all the sort of plot mostly into the dynamics of the environment and the characters there's a very lovely larp that i've actually bought because they weren't going to run it anymore and we want to we want to rerun it um it's called the witches of ester farm and it's set at an internment camp for witches in sweden during the second world war so either your 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 witches who are, uh, for like political reasons, uh, considered to be potentially weapons of war. And in this neutral country, they have to put them in internment camps uh, or your staff at the internment camp. And then like the, there's some there's so many potential stories just there. And like the witches' magical powers are subdued using like runes and iron. And they kind of really don't want their magical powers to be subdued. 
but they kind of also don't want to put their families who are outside the camp in danger. And then, like, that's basically the situation is so strong that if you give all the characters a personality, you kind of don't need any more than that. But then you can also make the choices. And in that particular, um, that has some directions. There are three, that, that particular LARP, for instance, it's so that there are kind of three ending scenes. And depending on on which choices your character makes, it's, they're going to organically end up in one of three places at the end of the LARP, and all of them are going to have a cool finale. Um, Baphomet, which is a horror LARP that we run, is structured so that the whole thing is kind of a, it's a journey. It's about it's a, this group of people who are trying, to, they're doing a ritual and they're calling down the, the wrong thing. Uh, and two deities, Baphomet and Pan, come down and, and possess them. And there's this mechanism where where the possession moves between the players. So you are take turns being possessed by, by these demons. And then there are some rules around what you do when, when that's the case. And all of these characters go on this journey of like losing their civilization together but we also you already know from the beginning that at the very end you will be in the final ritual there will be a choice that you will follow either Baphomet or Pan and then you're going to run in either in in like you're going to go in different directions and the ending that I played when I played it myself big believer in playing playing your company's work uh, is that you you end up in a pool and the and then everybody gets submerged and then when your head is under the 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 water the LARP will end. And at the beginning, you don't know why that's going to be so meaningful and why that choice is going to be meaningful, but you can trust that by the time we get to this to this final choice, I'm going to, I, the player, I'm going to know which is the correct choice for my character and I'm going to know what it means. And then I'm going to end up in a place. But it could also be, like, there could also be a plot, like Inside Hamlet follows the plot of Hamlet. And it also does a world simulation, like there's a war going on outside and you can call on the phone and then there are NPCs answering the phone and they are playing all the characters of the rest of the world right. you need a little bit of a database and like five people but it's absolutely possible to simulate the whole a whole world outside and then of course they can run they can feed you some narrative elements so there can be a story like there can be plot absolutely in LARPs that is more of like what you'd expect I guess for G a, a DM to do in in Dungeons and Dragons but but it's kind of fed to you through the environment like it's it's right. made real in the fiction and then you act on it you know Maybe you get a letter. I just have so many questions about the mechanic. Like, so do do you provide costumes, or do, do the players bring their own costumes? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. Yes, no, I just took that for granted. Sorry. Uh, typically, the players will bring their own costumes uh, for some events, and especially if it's uniforms or things like that, uh, then it would be built into the the ticket price. And some events that are have very sort of high costuming standards, but are also in low cost countries in practical terms. This is usually the combination. Then uh, they are collaborating with local like seamstresses, for instance. So a lot of these sort of Polish castle LARPs, if you go and play like historical uh, LARPs, they will they will sometimes have like good deals with with uh, with local people that you are then supporting um, by by ordering costumes from them. But then you'd have to pay for it. But like yeah, it's still like on the it's on the participant. But sometimes there's uh, there are some collaborations that make that easier. And for and some kinds of historical LARPs, maybe like they would be there would be a pretty detailed costume guide around materials, the styles, and maybe some patterns. Like it depends. Swedes love to craft their costumes and be very historically correct. And I grew up in Finland, so my whole adult life has been this nightmare of never feeling that I like my outfits are cool enough. (laughs) (laughs) And also, how much do these experiences typically cost as a player? Way too little, say I as a producer. Um, But it's, uh, no, it's, it's, I mean, so... (laughs) 
So the majority of this environment, like I would say like at least 80%, maybe more of the best designers who are working in this medium are working in nonprofit associations and they're not getting paid. They're not taking, they're not paying themselves either. Uh, and, uh, and the crews are often volunteers because people are so passionate about this stuff. And of course, that means that the ticket prices are ludicrously low. So you can go to like a fully catered, you know, event for three days or five days. And often like the, the, the ticket price would be perhaps 500 euros or 600 euros or sometimes even less, depending on, you know, if it's bigger, of course, the individual ticket prices tend to go down. So you could might be able to get something like this for 300 euros even. And I think maybe that the most expensive end, there would be like, yeah, I think it would be difficult to get people to pay 700 euros for a one day event, but it maybe that would be, maybe if it's very special, um, but I, I think that there's somewhere, I, I think after the pandemic, uh, I, I would be surprised if we didn't land on, like, if you're going to live, if you're going to have some kind of castle style accommodation and food, and let's say two nights, three nights on location, I would be surprised if you can get that for less than 600 euros. But that's Wait, still that like ludicrous. Wait, that food? Yes, ma'am. What? <laughs> So the, this is, I thought this so was this just was, for the event, not for accommodations. No, 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 no. That tends to be included. And this is why it's a little bit of a challenge for people like me who are like, you know, and, and we're. this is also, we're obviously we're not making any money. We're trying not to lose money on our production. Obviously. This, how are you even? So, no, but, but, the, but the thing is the skill set, like this is R&D for all of our other consulting work. We do, working... Solving LARP problems is so difficult that if you can like design a good LARP, like solving a problem for a museum or like doing some kind of participation consulting or helping a VR designer, like they, they, I'm like no offense to the VR designers, but all of their storytelling problems are like ludicrously trivial. They, I have to say, like what's happened in the last five years is fantastic. Uh, at least the right questions are being asked now, uh, and it's very difficult to work, you know, in a medium where the the technological like framework is moving so fast i get that like i totally get that but a lot of these you know a lot of these problems we've solved a lot of the problems in immersive theater have been solved you know before uh, and it means that it's like teaching people these skills is also a job and that means that it it empowers like it it makes it feasible within the like within my company to to do this like more art project type things um, right. And another thing is that happens for us is like we have to pay VAT, so sales tax on the tickets, uh, which of course the nonprofits largely don't. So that means already that in, depending on which country it's running in, uh, my budget is going to be 10 to 25% smaller than than the equivalent nonprofit. Uh, and at least, you know, we want people who work on these things to get paid at least a little um, yeah. It's very, very little. So, but it, it's very difficult to do ethically. But on the other hand, we're professionals, so we're just so much more efficient in the work that we so, can do it a lot faster. So at least there's that. And then yeah. I just have one last question about the mechanics, which is I know you've mentioned that these events are usually multi-day affairs. Yeah. So how long does each how long are people playing for and then like are there yeah. breaks in between um because this is also like a day-long event it's not like you know a one hour two hour theatrical yeah. performance right no for sure so it's, it's much more like living a reality for a little like stepping into a reality and living it for a while um and that means early on what we all thought like in the 90s and i want to say like probably still 10 years ago there was this idea that 
that there's some kind of like benefit to being in in character as much as possible and the players often the participants will want it they will be like like they will there was a point where they were like critical oh but there's so much so many hours of workshop like is it worth the ticket price if we're only getting x hours of runtime which is when the actual like when the characters are being played but then people are realizing that no like we make this investment in like out of character prep on site together and it's going to allow us to play so much better as it's happening. And another thing that happens is like, um, so you can actually take breaks. Like you build, now it's very common to build in breaks. Sometimes there isn't any, like sometimes there's a lovely location and there's just no way to have a nice in-character sleeping arrangement. And then you just break and people sleep out of character. And that's often more comfortable anyway. Um, so, and then that's there. And But also for consent negotiations, like again, you might want to put stuff in if you want time jumps in a in the story, you kind of need everybody to stop at the same time and start at the same time, because otherwise there's going to be confusion about like, what time is it even now inside the fiction and things like that. So you're, there are a lot of reasons why you would want to have breaks. And what we're learning and what seems so blatantly obvious now but I don't know why we didn't understand this for the first 10, 15 years, but like the brain doesn't care about those breaks because <laughs> all of that's edited out. Like if you pause a film while watching the film and go to the bathroom and then you go back to your living room and continue watching it, your bathroom break is not part of the film in your memory. <laughs> like the act break in the theater, you know, there's an act break and you go to the bar and you have a glass of wine and then you go back and see the second part of the performance also, that is not included in your brain. Your brain is perfectly capable of sorting out all the out-of-fiction out of stuff into one pile and all the in-fiction stuff into one pile. So basically, any break that you can take to make the in-fiction stuff stronger or safer or better or more coherent is actually like an investment into making it feel more real as you're playing and also in particular afterwards. So this, so we have this like weird prejudice that, that taking a break would somehow be bad, but it's not bad, it's great. But do you guys have like set start and end times or is it 24 seven, the whole time you're just playing? It depends on like the event. 10 oh, a.m. it starts and then 5 p.m. Well, you have to know when it, when you have to know when it starts and ends, you're, you're gonna have an end when you need to be at the location, you know, that's gonna be a hard uh, arrival time. But I mean and, like per day. Like in yeah, no, no, no. Well, it depends on the event. So sometimes you sleep in character. Forbidden history, for instance, this this college LARP that I'm going to, um, we're going to be, the rooms are in, in character rooms and we're going to be sleeping in characters. That's basically 24-7. Then, but then there the solution is that there are some out-of-character spaces like that you can at any time go to certain areas of the castle that are out-of-character so you can step out of that situation. And of course, it's also about some people just can't you know, or medical reasons, there are, you know, there might be reasons to keep for some players to just keep their bedrooms outside of the fiction. Um, but, but yeah, that's a, that's the thing. And, and it's sometimes if you play, so uh, I don't know when I played Baphomet, for instance, which is this horror LARP, which to, to me and my co-player, that's uh, also, you sign up in, in pairs and it's a friend that I've, I've known since we were teenagers who I, who I played it with. And a lot of that, our story, our story in that LARP, was about what it means to have been married for a really long time to somebody and what it means to be yeah, like a creative professional in midlife and not maybe and in some ways have achieved your goals and in some other ways not at all have achieved achieved your goals and yeah it was in the context of this like vintage occult setting but <laughs> but a lot of our play because the thing is when you're like 40 plus you can tell very different stories about marriage for instance 
than when you're 20. I didn't know that at 20, but I know it now. So to be able to have like a shared bedroom with a person that I trust and know, like in my real life, and we can have that little play of like, how, what do they talk? How do they talk to each other as they get dressed in the morning? Or like, how do they criticize the other participants in this retreat when they're getting ready for dinner? You know, like those kinds of things. It's just such nuanced, like fine caliber, close up, like HBO drama play that you wouldn't get, you know, in a in a public space in another way. And that makes it the trade off of the loss of privacy, basically, you know, um, it, it, it makes it worth it. But then you have to play with somebody you really trust and that you're comfortable sharing a bedroom with. So that's obviously not possible for for a lot of other events. Inside Hamlet, you always slept out of character and there's uh and there were very set times. Like it's gonna be, we're gonna the workshop starts at 10, we go in character at about after lunch directly. There's an act break at around five. It's gonna be somewhere in this window in case you be you're you know that in this window you're gonna be out of character in case you need to make calls. And the start and ending times are a little bit like flexible. So it depends on the event. Uh, totally. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a fascinating and deep world. <laughs> yeah. I- I am so overwhelmed. I'm like, I. P- P- Can G, I you, ask? This, this is this is this is this is how I was feeling. <laughs> I mean, and this is somebody who did Survivor. I went without food for four days. In yeah, basically. I would never do that. <laughs> Ever. I, I slept outdoors with like in the sand with a bunch of strangers, and I didn't eat any food for four days, and I was kicking people off of a boat. So like, I. I, I get, I'm like, it's funny that I'm like, whoa, that sounds really intense. I could never imagine. Uh- <laughs> Can I ask you something about, about Survivor? Because I was in my youth, early, early, this is like, so Survivor started in Sweden yeah, as yeah. Expedition Robinson. And, and I moved to Sweden around the turn of the millennium. And then it was already a, a couple of seasons in, because I remember watching it um, when I was living in Finland. But I, I, because I was working like in broadcast, I was in the media, but I was like, I was not established, so no, I wasn't anybody like. But I, I was, I was hanging out with people working who worked in television because I did as well, and I ended up in this very weird conversation with somebody who was trying to cast me for basically for an early season of of what would become Survivor, and I don't know why. I, I mean, I think I realized that it's just like I am not, I do not have any of the relevant skills, but because it feels like it also came close. Like that was the right decision for me, but I've had this weird like interest and obsession with this since. So how do you negotiate that for yourself? Like going without food for four days, for instance, like why is, why is that something that you would want to do? I didn't want to do that like at all. (laughs) I was not expecting it. That was a surprise to me as well. Um, Yeah, that was honestly going without food was the one thing that I really had no expectations of. And I didn't realize what a big factor it would be. I I guess you kind of have a notion, but it's not real until you've actually done it. So like I'd watch it at home and I'd be like, that looks easy. I could do that. Uh, and you go out there and never having experienced not going without food, um, it's so hard to describe what it's like. Like if you've even gone 24 hours without food, you feel a little bit cranky. You're like, oh, I feel tired or whatever. Um, you know, and then going on to like the fourth day, it's just so otherworldly. But I did not know. I, I guess I don't know why I didn't really think that, but I didn't realize it would be 
super intense. Um, but it, I, I liked that the environment and everything really made me feel like, yes, I'm a castaway. I'm stuck on this island. And this became a very real situation, even though it is make-believe. I could have left at any point I wanted to. But... And there are cameras there. And I mean, but but of course, like, so you know exactly. So it's possible to unthink that. Like, even it can be real and not real totally at the same time. Yes. And yes, I guess it... in that way, it's, it's very much like a LARP. You lose the cameras after one very fast. After a day, you start... I, I actually don't even remember in my memory. I don't even see them. You know what I mean? Right. Like looking back. Yes, because your mind is editing them out because they're not present in the fiction. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah. And they're in your face. Like they'll they'll be right there. There'll be a guy with like the camera mic and everything hanging over you. And yeah, I've just kind of, you just kind of forget it. <laughs> so in LARP, I mean, because we design for the body a lot, and then also we were all like young and radical at the same time. All the designers in my generation were young and radical at the same time. We often had this idea, oh, like what, how we could make it like more hardcore, like a little bit like I see some haunted house designers are, are on this trip right now. And I'm looking yeah. at them like, oh, sweet summer's child. You think it's going to be better? It's not going to be better. <laughs> I. And, and it is, there's, there's so like discomfort. Okay. Like physical discomfort, using it as a design element, very good. But what, you know, what you realize after a while is like, you kind of want people to still be able to engage with the fiction. So like a really good way of simulating being very hungry is being slightly hungry. A really good way of simulating being quite drunk is being, is having had like one glass of wine, you know? So, so your body remembers, oh yeah, like this is how, this is my body on alcohol. But then you're, but then you're going to pretend like all of your next glasses are going to be like non-alcoholic, and of course it's also possible to do without. But for people who do drink alcohol, it's no big deal. Yeah, and then actually that glass of wine is a really good idea to just get yourself in that mindset. Oh, you know, and being a little tired is a really good simulation for being very tired, because my experience is if people are super hungry or super tired or drunk or like they're not going to be able to maintain the coherence of the situation they they can't listen to each other they can't follow instructions they're going to be super cranky some people are going to be just like completely impossible um and why would you want that like as part of the but i mean in this case they, that's also an endurance test and i think a fiction is not an endurance test it has to be in the service of the story. So like, I would never go on Fear Factor. Fear Factor is all the discomforts of Survivor without any of the kind of narrative, the intrigue, the the negotiations, like the depth of story um, and those bonds that you have with people because they are very, and, you know, Survivor takes place over 30, well, it used to take place over 39 days. Um, so it's a very long time. So like, but I would do something like Survivor because that physical discomfort, all those things are in service to the story, right? And this is basically like, say, you know, these haunts that do these really extreme things or make you very physically uncomfortable. Uh, I would never do those either because that doesn't sound fun to me for the sake of adrenaline or just for the sake of being uncomfortable. But if you're going to put me in that situation in service of a LARP where it makes sense. Maybe I'm like a prisoner in a dungeon somewhere. I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that would, that, that sounds appealing to me. Right. <laughs> and we wouldn't do it for 39 days. Like we wouldn't put you in a dungeon for 39 days. And then it's very helpful. I mean, there are some people and it's all, it's also like a lot of designers go through this phase also where they're like, Oh, if I do this, like if I do these things to the players, like at them, if I place them in these situations, and see what happens. That would be interesting. It's like, no, that's interesting for you, the designer. It's actually not necessarily an interesting, like being locked in a dungeon, 
that gets can get the wrong kind of boring really fast because you don't have any agency over the situation at all. And I feel like there's still something about like Survivor where that like that's an endurance test. So that it's also you kind of have the choice to like hang in there, like even if that's not a big you know it's, it's the agency isn't enormous, but at least it's that's an action like it's an active continuing is an active choice whereas if i'm locked in a dungeon you know hour three and nobody's talking to me even my like enjoyment of internal role play on my own it has probably reached its limit about an hour earlier i'd start so, looking for puzzles that's <laughs> be lots of yeah and then it's like oh is this yeah am i missing something is this actually the kind of larp where this would i did hear a, a a talk a very funny talk that somebody gave where they'd been at this larp and uh and they were locked a group of people they were locked in some kind of water tower and then in in a fury she kicked the door and it flew open and they all looked at each other and they looked at the door and then they carefully closed it again because they realized obviously it's not really locked for fire safety reasons and then they stand stay in there and, and talk and after like an hour an organizer comes in there and it's like i'm sorry and just like make some kind of you know out of character sign and says i'm why are you still here and they're like well and then they realized no like the door was actually supposed to be open <laughs> <laughs> they were supposed to be able to escape almost immediately. Somebody on the other side had accidentally, accidentally on purpose, not locked the door. Um, but they were so dutiful in maintaining the fiction that they accidentally locked, kept stayed in the room for no reason. And then they had to figure out some plot reason why this made sense. And that can happen. So it's good. Like, it's good to have. And that's why sometimes you will see this door is locked written on a door if the players are supposed to know that it's actually locked or you tell them in advance, you mm -hmm. know. This is a common escape room problem, especially for experienced players, is that they're more respectful of the game and the environment and the fiction than the game wants them to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, you know, maybe there's a prop that you need to apply just a little bit of pressure to open it. And your typical player will just do that very casually. The person who walked in off the street and they've never played or they've played one or two games, the person who's played 50 or 100 or more um, and I think the more they've played, the, the more gentle they are with that environment and the more respectful they are and the more permission they need to go and apply that force. Um, and that happens to imagine. me all the time. I would imagine that you very fast, you're like, okay, uh, could it feasibly be that I'm supposed to do this thing or move all of these things? And then you do a little mental calculation. How long would it mean that the reset time is? Yep. No, that doesn't seem reasonable. And yeah. so I'm not going to do that. And like, no, maybe actually, maybe they have a fix for that. Like, and, so, and then it's back to like, how do I trust them? Do I trust them to understand their own design? Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I can be a difficult player in that, in my mind. Like it's, but that's, I guess that's also part of now why I like to play, like not like play hard, but play deep, right? Is mm -hmm. that, because I have to get past that level where my brain is just analyzing the design the whole time or seeing what they've done. I, I feel the same way. And when you talk about like player trust, you know, it, it, it plays out differently in an escape room where, um, the first few puzzles I'm always thinking about and the first few challenges, because sometimes they're not even just puzzles at this point. Um, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, how cleanly was this designed? How well was this executed? Mm -hmm. How much do I trust the person who made this? And the deeper I get into it, the more, tr you know, if it, if it is consistently executed well, the more I start to trust them. And then once we reach a point where we get stuck, um, then I know that I, I, I believe 
that there is going to be an elegant solution. There is a designed way through this. Whereas yeah. the more haphazard it is early on, the deeper we get into it when we get stuck, the mental math is, well, maybe this is just trash and maybe we need to go and be a little bit more aggressive or maybe we need to go and start thinking about really stupid solutions to this problem um, because oh, yeah. there weren't elegant designs early on. And so, yeah, it, it compounds on itself and it changes your relationship with the game. So this is exciting. I'm going to point you at a paper uh, that I co-authored last year about what we call now maps and loops. And this mm -hmm. is a thing we did, we reached this sort of design threshold. Like um, I, I edited that book, LARP Design, two years ago. I've been wanting to ask you if there's a way for me to get a copy of that book because I yes, can't find it. Yes, uh, the easiest way is to go to a, uh, an, the English bookshop in in uh, Stockholm called uh, that's at bookshop.se. Uh, they have it in stock. It's very randomly, and you have to search for it by name, but they do have it, and they ship internationally. So that's the easiest way. But depending Perfect. on where you are, there there's also like other other stores. Uh, but yeah, like we, so we gathered a fair amount of like the just like good practical advice in that book, and and we have. I feel like we are starting to have a really good understanding of the design principles. And always when you think like I've got this thing cracked, there's always something else. And the big frontier, which is super exciting, is that we know so much about design, and all the designers obviously are also players. Um, but we don't know almost anything about playing. Like now we're only now we're starting to seriously think about like, what do we do when we play? And that's a good book that I was also co-editing that came out last year called What Do We Do When We Play? <laughs> and I think it's going to be, the PDF is going to be out uh, next year, uh, next month, I think. Oh, and that's like that's uh, uh, LARP specific, uh, but there you can find the Maps and Loops paper there. And that's a kind of a heavy theory paper. But, but the point is that when you start uh, at the beginning of a LARP, and I would expect that the same to be kind of true for the beginning of an escape room, you start to build like a mental map. You enter, you start to build like a sketch of a map in your mind of everything I need to know to be able to participate in this thing. All of those things we talked about, who's my character and all that stuff. But also like, what do I know about the play style? Who are the designers? Do I know something about the kinds of things or choices that they like? How do I, what's my vibe of my co-players? Um, what time is lunch? Like a billion different things that, that you might need to, to know in advance. And you kind of sketch that out. And then you have some idea of like, once we start playing, what is it going to be like? Then you start playing and it's so uncomfortable. Like the first five minutes are like weirdly awkward always. And we have all kinds of design side tricks. Like you, you start with some kind of situation that people are very familiar with. Like, yeah, like a classroom setting or a wedding or something. Everybody knows what to do so they can kind of warm up in a low stakes situation. Um, so that's a way of doing it, but it's still it's still weird and awkward on the player side. And, and that's kind of, you're kind of coloring in the map, right? And then you, you're building it also as you go along. Sorry, you were, you were saying? Yeah, as a, it's similar but different in escape rooms. So like the way that I play is really, and, I, and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that the way that I play and the way that my friends play is different than the person who has just bought a ticket. They've never played one of these before. Maybe they've played one or two, or they didn't even buy their ticket. Their partner bought their ticket and they're dragged along. They don't even want to be here. Mm -hmm. You get put into this room some of the companies do a really bad job of setting this setting the scene building the context building your building your world and i think the most egregious problem that escape rooms have had for a really long time is that in so many places they're framed up as this um mental challenge this um test mm -hmm. of wits and if you can't beat it 
you're an idiot. Which, as you know, I, I think also collides with different cultures in different ways. I think in the U.S., it has there are certain you know as as you know the playing to uh, playing to lose conversation, um, you know, got at mm. there. There's a lot of issues with with framing something up as you know a, a binary. You're either smart enough to overcome this, or you're an idiot, um, which is what the message ultimately yeah. boils down to. And the core issue is that if people fail often, then I as a designer am probably the idiot, but okay, pal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and, yeah. and we'll, we've encountered designers over the years who, and especially early on, it's less prevalent now, but it used to be, we, we used to run into designers who had this like, it's me versus the players and I want them to lose. And we would get that even more, I think, from those types of people where we would walk in as, you know, I would not call myself this, but we've definitely encountered this vibe where people are like, oh, I want to beat the experts, which always makes things just so incredibly uncomfortable. You know, players don't know what they're getting into. They don't know what to expect. I've sat in an escape room lobby and I have watched people memorizing the company's phone number, memorizing their address. There was something on, you know, there was something on the wall that was some art. It happened to have some numbers in it. They're memorizing the numbers because they don't know where the magic circle begins and they don't huh. know where the, where, where the mystery begins. And then this starts to bleed over into their interactions with the game master, who is usually a safe person. They're there to facilitate. They're not an adversary. But then the player starts to wonder, well, are you my enemy? Are you trying to deceive me? Can I trust the rules you're telling me? You're telling me not to break things, but does that mean I'm supposed to break things? <laughs> yeah, this is such a weird problem. I, I think we've seen it. I mean, we also saw a lot of it with like alternate reality games and, and that whole like this is not a game aesthetic. There was this whole idea that it was somehow cool and actually a lot of immersive. I mean, not so much now, but I feel like a lot of immersive is also struggling. Immersive theater is, is, is struggling with the same idea that it's somehow lovely if you're like, you're confusing like theming or like, you know, like you let the fiction bleed out and all your, all your, everybody that you interact with at the venue have to be like in character. And it's like, yeah, but do they though? Like, does that really help you or does it harm you? Like, wouldn't it be convenient if there's just like one person who looks you in the eye, who's always going to be out of character. And even if they're standing physically at the door and like after that, yeah, okay. The bartender can be themed or not, but you're going to have a problem if you don't know yeah, where the fiction ends, uh, exactly for this reason. Yeah, and in escape rooms, there's a small number of companies, and they're usually very skilled companies um, that do full facility theming, where everything from the front door to the hallways to the staff to the games are all set in one unified world, and it's costumed, and you know, everyone you encounter, everything you encounter, sometimes even the bathrooms are in world, and it's it's really cool when that's done well. But that only really seems to work exactly as you want it to when you don't get the sense that the um, that the the staff is there to undermine you. You really have to be yeah. you really have to believe and understand that they're not they, that they want you to succeed. Yeah, and I guess that goes back to this thing. Like the kinds of LARPs that I play are not. I would say by most definitions of game, they're not games. I mean, we call them games. And I, 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 I'm I, not sure if I said game in the podcast, I may have. I try not to. I try to say LARPs mm -hmm. instead because there's also that expectations. Like there are a lot of expectations that come with the word game. 
and and some of them are about like oh but it's about competition or about entertainment or like play in some kind of non-serious sense and therefore also it it's inappropriate to engage with serious themes in these contexts as like no it's play like theater it's 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 play like ritual even like it's not it's not necessarily um, it doesn't have to be competitive and the most important well i mean our kinds of larps are not competitive they can be about the fictions can have competitive elements as a structuring force but the players are never competitors the players are are uh, co-creators um and i guess there's and that it's a difficult thing when there's this also this feeling because there's another power dynamic there which is the customer relationship that there's a feeling when you're buying from a professional company i'm buying a ticket to an escape room you know there's also some idea of like my money's worth there's very it's a very weird dynamic very rarely do you buy a service and with the intent of kind of being fooled and challenged by the provider of the service. So and, and you're both kind of entitled as a customer at the same time as you are paranoid about everything. And you're being taught to be a paranoid. Like it's really difficult to figure out a good trusting relationship or just any clear communication, as you say, when the, the social roles are so confused. Um, you can absolutely make a fully themed event, but like then, then everybody needs to know that that's what it's going to be. So you give them the information before they arrive. Yeah. It's really not that difficult. It's as easy as like I've. There's very few escape rooms that are fully immersive from the minute you walk in. The game master, everyone working there is in costume and in theme. I can only think of like off the top of my head. I can only think of like two instances where like like um, escape my room in New Orleans is like that. You walk in and you wouldn't even know that you're in a business, right? You just feel like you've walked into a world. Uh, Ministry of Peculiarities that I just played, it just opened up here in LA. It's the same thing. You walk in and the guy's in character. And you know, the difference is in both of those, the minute you walk in, they're like, oh, oh, you're the ones that are here to help us. So automatically we're on their team. And in fact, we're helping them. They're not the ones helping us. So this already has cut out that adversarial relationship, right? Whereas a lot of other places, the game master's like, oh, you guys are coming in. Oh, that's a hard one. You guys are experts. All right, let's see if you can beat this. We have a 20% success rate. So, but you guys are pretty good. Like, we'll see, you know? And so automatically yeah. the whole dynamic is gone when you come in and they're in character. They're like, oh, great. You guys well, are the ones who can help us. But can yeah, you do you feel that. like you can ask meta level questions or like practical questions of a dude who is in character? Because like maybe they I want to answer in character. It. Yes. And they answer in character. Because, cause, yeah, okay. But then you need to design the fiction really specifically so that I'm going to feel comfortable asking my accessibility questions or my like bathroom questions. Because I might, you know what? I might not want, like, if it's an access issue, I don't necessarily want an in-character answer. I just want, like, we can play as long as I, like, because if the, if the questions are, you know, I might be asking about, like, a physical thing or about, I don't know, like, I don't know. It's, it could be embarrassing. People might have IBS and they might need, need, need to be able to go to a bathroom, like, really fast or whatever. And that's, like, a that's a kind of mortifying question that you don't want to have with some clown. Like, I don't want some elf to explain to me about the bathroom things or tell me that it's going to be okay. I'm asking for some reason and you don't know the reason, you know? Like, so so it, there's, there's a, I don't see, like, I know why why it would, can feel charming and I'm sure it can be done well. But it's a pretty like threading that needle is is hard. And for a lot of, for a lot of types of fictions and for a lot of types of characters, uh making that information available in some other way is probably better, you know? 
But then, but that could even literally just be like you will all read this document before you enter this room, and if you have questions, you can ask the questions like before we before we we like we can even do it in the street outside. Even that's fine, uh, and then everything can be themed. But it's but just I just, just I don't know. I feel like we've tried this, and and having the having a magic circle be clear is helpful but also i need to have some agency over when do i actually step into it if it already happened i feel like i've been fooled you know <laughs> yeah and that that is that is a thing and it, it it's the challenge becomes edge cases you can design for all of the normal stuff and you can design for like oh you know you can design for the bathroom question but like there are questions i i, I where um, and I, I tend to have edge case questions like, can I photograph the game when we're done? And, um, you know, that tends to break um, the in-character systems sometimes badly to, uh, and to the point where I, what I've learned is to just ask those questions after the fact, which also sometimes creates more problems. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do feel like it's less of an issue with escape rooms just because these are only at the most one and a half, you know, 90 minute True. experiences, yeah. right? So yeah. there's not a ton of things. And you generally speaking, they do, you know, that, you know, if you need to go to the bathroom, it's in the back and they can always address that. And can... I mean, they usually are. They usually do. I mean, escape rooms are, you know, the amount of times I have not been asked if I've uh, or encouraged to go to the bathroom beforehand is 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 pretty low. It's, it it usually comes up on its on its own. And I would assume that you're always told how to exit during if you need to. Yeah. Um, yes. Not no. <laughs> not always not often enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. Explicit instructions on how to exit aren't always great. You know, usually these days the doors just open. Sometimes the companies are just you know. They actually, they frequently do acknowledge like, hey, you know, we can't lock you in. So this door is always open or, you know, this is a push to exit button. Push this button and the door will pop open. That's that usually does come up in, in some way, yeah. shape or form. I guess it, it does vary based on country. Like in Greece, yeah. they're really not good at it. <laughs> they... I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of uh, a lot of the rooms are getting better at the immersive stuff. That's part of why, like, you know, we were excited to have you on to talk about um, these live action role playings, because more and more the escape rooms are kind of going into that direction, giving you a small taste. Of course, it's not a 24 seven, three day event, but as much as we can for that one short hour that you're in there. And some of those things even include like um, methods of hint giving, you know, moving the narrative help from outside and. And a lot of companies now are going towards giving you those hints from an in-game character, sometimes inside the room, which is a lot more fun than just, you know, walkie-talkie with the game master. Like, where are you guys at? Like, which puzzle did you just solve? Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's a, a new one in Helsinki. Uh, that I went and checked out the venue and heard their opening briefing, but I haven't played it. Uh, that's uh, And now I should know what the company is called. I'd say maybe beyond play. I think the, the experience is called Out of Orbit. And it's like a space shuttle situation where you end, like, and they say, they frame it as an escape room. But to me, it's like clearly a role-playing game. Like clearly a role-playing game. You have to fly this space shuttle and you have to like interact with, it's just that you have like, your your characters aren't particularly defined. But if you want to 
to to ro- kind of role play that's also available. And I know that people who are LARPers go in and just LARP the hell out of it. That's not a necessity. Like you can always also come in just like with a bachelor party or something like that, and and with zero experience of these kinds of things, and just sort of play as an escape room. But you kind of still do mostly narrative things. Um, man, it would be fascinating to hear where it sits on the scale for you, because to me it's like. Okay, but if this is obviously an, es- an escape room now, then a lot of then escape rooms have moved very far in the narrative direction from when I've been going recently. Like lately. that is an escape room. I mean, escape rooms. Uh, I think the more the more modern escape rooms and the direction that escape rooms are pushing is further and further away from um, puzzle gauntlet, as as we've mm-hmm. started to call them. We used to call them puzzle orgies, um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, this this like puzzle gauntlet where, you know, like you're in a themed environment and maybe you have themed puzzles, and, but you're like, you're just there to puzzle. You're there to, to, to solve problems. Um, I think the, the, the upper end of the market and is and for the most part has shifted into stuff that I think you would call a LARP or at least a role playing game, um, depending upon, you know, depending upon definition. I, I think that, um, you know, it, similarly, as escape rooms have become more narrative driven and more character focused and more experiential, um, they've been grappling less directly, but with the question of like, how how much difficulty do you need to put in someone in front of someone to make them feel challenged? Um, sort of like how hungry do you need to be to feel hungry or how tired do you need to feel need to be to feel sleepy? you don't need to be destroyed with hard puzzles. And in fact, like even by escape room standards, whatever would be a hard puzzle in the scheme of, in the grand scheme of puzzles is not a hard puzzle because the hardest an escape, you know, an escape room puzzle can possibly be is a puzzle that takes you an hour to solve. And that's, I've never seen a puzzle that hard. The longest I've ever seen an experienced player have to spend solving a puzzle was Lisa solving one massive logic puzzle that took her like 40 minutes while the rest of the team was off having fun poor lisa (laughs) that's the hardest i've ever seen and that doesn't sound like fun at all no it it wasn't fun but 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 was it fun for her though no no No. it was not fun for her she (laughs) likes a logic puzzle but she didn't want to spend 40 minutes doing that while other people were off having better experiences yeah no but like in the scheme of puzzle difficulty, you have MIT Mystery Hunt puzzle hunt puzzles that could take yeah. multiple people with many advanced degrees, many hours to solve and require lots of technology to do it. You can also have like mechanical puzzles. Like I own some mechanical puzzles that I have owned for years and I have never solved them. You know, they mm-hmm. sit on my desk. I pick them up. I try and figure them out and I don't. And then I put them down and then I pick it up again, in the, you know, next week, you know, or mm-hmm when I'm on a call that's boring, like hard, like truly hard puzzles can literally be years of effort. And so a hard escape room puzzle can't be that hard in the like spectrum of puzzle difficulty. But that brings us like, I'm thinking about the thing that you were saying, PJ, about like wanting to, that you want to play like with your crew more for narrative now. And, and I, cause I thought about it then that in passing, that there's also something about knowing that you're coming up to the end of that hour where that structure, like then, like, because then you can also, I mean, even if you, the reason that you're coming up close on the deadline is that you dallied on purpose 
you know, then it can still be super exciting. Like the end can be so much more exciting now that you've put your, you, you've upped to the difficulty level by knowing that you have much less time at the end. So you can also control the pacing more yourself. And I think that kind of a dance is kind that feels like that's very similar. The things that you do when you make those kinds of choices are similar to, to what you do when you LARP. I just played, um, it's a pretty new game. It's called Loot Wars. It's set in a post-apocalyptic world and we're basically scavengers, like, you know, having to hunt for supplies to stay alive or whatever, right? And so I'm playing with my normal group and we are, we have made it into, there's three rooms. We have made our way past the second room. We're in the third room and you kind of have to keep going back to the first room to get stuff. And um, my friend Brian, who was in the military uh, years ago, comes into the room and he is, we did not know that there was going to be an actor involved in this room. And suddenly he's confronted with a guy like in a ski mask, holding a pipe, like grabbing some of our stuff. And he freaked out because he was not expecting this. He ran back and slammed the door uh, and grab, or I think he grabbed something and like menaced him out. Cause they give you like weapons, like bats and guns and stuff. And so the whole time after that, all of a sudden, David, Brian went into full on like military PTSD mode where like he every time we had to go back into the other room, he was like, I need somebody to cover me and I'd be working on something and I would have to he would like I'd have to grab a gun and follow him. He's like, are you covering me? He's like, watch the door. He made us lock, relock the doors behind us every time we left three so this is two different things that like we're like having to lock the doors set them like peek out he's he's like look out the peephole first and the full-on like war games in this thing and also the guy would come in and turn off the light like sometimes like he'd sneak in and so then somebody would have to go out in the dark and turn the light back on and you didn't have to do any of this stuff the, the, the whole guarding the following him with the gun and locking the doors like i don't know that that was necessary but he made all of us do it and added but wasn't it necessary though because like in either the guy with like either the 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 adversary means something or they don't and if they mean something then it has some consequences like if it's like if it's kind of a functional part of the experience that there's an enemy then i guess you kind of have to it made it a lot more fun it it motivates it for you also to maintain that fiction and that's the thing where like maybe it's a bad design in that you can kind of like I mean, at the very least, and I get this because again, it's like some of the some of the players who were in that room are not going to engage in it with it on that level, um, and it needs to work for them as well. Probably oh, this is why it's very difficult to have the same experience for everybody. But I'm so like pleased to hear that it was designed in a way where you got a much stronger experience if you engaged with that with the narrative logic of the situation. <laughs> Can I tell you, I came back in after going on one of these trips with Brian and we came back into the room and I Tommy and I come back in and Tommy and Marley are both in camo jackets and holding guns. And I was like, what has happened to my group? Like everybody was fully on these people are usually the most mild, like chill, like mild. Picturing Tommy people. with a gun is hilarious. Tommy and Marley both in camo jackets, wearing the camo jackets and like holding like these freaking like automatic, you know, machine guns. <laughs> but there's some, there's like that's about the power of this story. It's like the, when the social reality becomes real, it allows you to do the things and it allows you to be that person, and and also like it's a low stakes way to be that. 
person. Like you get to be that hero or that person who can defend their crew or whatever, he, you know, and look cool doing yeah. it. They, they, they made us grab all these supplies and bring them back into the home base, which is the first room. And I'm like, we don't need, to, I'm like, Brian, we don't need to do that. He was like, no, 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 this is the home base. Like we need to like collect everything and we can lock that room. <laughs> It, it is also possible that his like actual real world like tactical knowledge got in the way of like what would make sense in the in the context of the fiction. But yeah, it sure sounds like worried. it became very immersive. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is another thing. I mean, statistically, I guess if you have a room in the U.S., the 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 odds that a veteran is going to be in there probably every day, like it's. The odds are that they will, uh, and then I wonder if they have really thought that thing through. <laughs> but okay, I have a post that I've written and I just haven't published yet because I have to mentally be in the place where I will be ready to deal with the conversations that will happen when I publish it. But um, I I get very nervous about the type of interaction that PG was just talking about um, being implemented in states that have concealed carry gun laws and allow. And, and, and there is the potential that there is a player who is actually armed with a loaded gun in the game because it's not an impossibility. It is a legitimate risk if you are trying to push a game further into an immersive space, especially if you're playing with anything, you know, anything where the players feel menaced by another character in any way, shape or form. Um, if you're not accounting for the fact that a player could actually have a gun on them. Something could go down. He did say that 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 it has almost gotten physical. It, it's been close, you know, like where they have been pushed or like whatever. Because the thing is, if because when they don't tell you, they also then don't give you the uh, please do not touch the act. You know what I mean? Like, and most yeah. like we know that, but people who are new to this might not know if you don't specifically say please don't touch them that's the thing yeah. that i was you know as you were t as you were telling that story um my face was saying a lot of things um, i know it was and, fun for me but i understand yeah, that the, it is not a safe yeah it's, it's just yeah it's no, it's, in particular it's not safe for the performer like that's yeah. that's also something to this is a workplace pro like safety problem as well so so it's yeah messing around at the edges of the reality is is yeah, it, it, it can be super safe if everybody understands where those limits are. And this isn't just, I mean, I had for, completely forgotten about com concealed carry laws. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, that, uh, that this seems to be to some people uh, a necessity, uh, because I got to say from, from, from this side of the pond, it does not make sense. Um, but but uh, yeah, like I guess in a state like that, you would absolutely have to have rules uh, about that. This is also an accessibility um, um, in in many ways and an access issue. There's a, a wonderful LARP theorist called Janea Kemper, who's American, and she gave a Nordic LARP talk. The Nordic LARP talks are like kind of like Nordic LARP TED talks kind of thing. You can find us on YouTube. And she gave a wonderful uh, Nordic LARP talk about playing this sort of Westworld um, themed LARP. Uh, and what it means as a, as a black person from from the U.S. to play with guns, like what that the, the experience of that is so different, and the the perceived danger of of that is so different. And I'm like I'm not doing it justice, and I'm not even going to try to to summarize it because it's about many other things as well. It's one of the most beautiful uh, talks on this topic that I've ever heard. Like the topic of of LARP even, um, and and it's just. 
like it, there's a kind of blindness, you know, there's a kind of blindness that probably comes from privilege. If, if you feel that you can design those kinds of interactions into rooms where to people who are not prepared and, and expect that nothing, that nobody would do something that you wouldn't do uh, or that you couldn't do. And this isn't just like, this isn't just a gun law thing. It's everything, you know, because you can't, you will never be able to imagine everything that people might do. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in a practical way, like martial art, people with martial arts training, uh, have can have reflexes that will be problematic in the exact same way so it, having a, a physical event where 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 surprise type fighting interactions can happen is dangerous if some of the of the uh, participants are trained to fight uh, either it's not accessible to them because they can't pretend to fight in a meaningful way so they actually feel locked out from their competence or somebody actually jumps them and they're going to like defend themselves for the first two seconds before they can stop themselves. Like there's a lot of things that can go wrong and none of those are a good idea. But also there are some things that are consensual. So people who do martial arts uh, in, in sparring, that, that's a kind of full contact, low impact style of fighting. Um, or sometimes it's it's full contact, full impact kind of fighting in, in training. And that means that if you have participants who have that training, they can, between themselves, if you allow it, negotiate that they're okay with, for instance, actual boxing. Mm-hmm. And then that might make, even though they have negotiated it and they know how to do that safely, then that creates a situation where the people who are watching them do not understand why the hell some people are now throwing actual punches. you know, And they might be terrified and then they can't play anymore because now they, they don't know where the limits are anymore. Um, or... You know, even people who know how to fight will still accidentally hurt each other. And if that happens at your event, and if it was consensual, then it's still your problem. And so I always say that even when you let participants negotiate the levels, you kind of have to set the ceiling. Like you have to set the cap on what is the most, like maximum, most intense interaction that can happen. And that's why it sounds so like freakish when I have to say like, you know, if you have pretend sex, you have to have your underwear on. Like, why do I have to make that explicit? Well, because what if these people are real world partners or something, or just like they're very single and very into it? Like, do then if I didn't forbid it, they might just go for it. They're like 99 times out of 100, nobody's going to just go for it because that would be weird. But maybe they think they have privacy in that moment and then maybe they don't. Uh, or, or maybe like, they want you know, the audience. Or yeah, well yeah, I mean sure, yeah, it's also <laughs> that's, possible. That's, that is entirely like, it is still, plausible. It, entirely plausible this theoretical, but then it's then consent becomes an issue again, right? Yeah. So so it's also so you have to kind of set the cap, and I I, I get to consult, uh, or that is to say, I get to read people's safety designs uh, or calibration. We talk a lot about more about calibration actually than safety. Safety is about things that are dangerous, like how to mm-hmm. not actually accidentally have somebody get shot with a real gun that's safety but calibration playstyle calibration is like how do do you and i like negotiate our specific interactions fluidly um and that's a useful distinctions once once you get a little further ahead in these these designs so david was your objection is that the actor was that that we were not told there would be an actor to me it sounds like there are a few layers of failures in this one is um one is that you you had no idea that there was going to be a performer in there and you were given no guidelines about how to interact with them or how they would interact with you. That is true. Um, that's a, the, 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 to me, those are, those are two, two failures and probably enough. We were given a real wooden bat 
with like yeah. this the sec- kind of- the, so the second is 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 the presence of all of these weapons um both the firearms which can be used as a blunt you know even even no 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 ammunition they're still a blunt weapon um and then baseball bats um and these, these were things... not plastic guns these were like um like a bb like there was weight there yeah. was metal it mm-hmm. was like... yeah so these are physically are weapons and even if you can't use them in their intended purpose they are you know they they are psychologically they are weapons they're a thing you use to defend yourself they're a thing you cling to if if you are if you're made afraid so i think that they're like from my perspective that blend um is very dangerous unless you if you aren't going miles out of your way to make that a safe environment it could also be completely safe with just like like very little framing yeah like you know and because it's a way you can be a little bit you can put in the information about that there might be you could put in like there there are three kinds of things that might happen you know like you could you could you could put in a little bit of extra something on the list of things that might happen and and give some general rules for how to do this um, I don't know, like you can't use uh, physical, you, might, you, you, you can't get physical with each other yeah. or with any, like, with any humans inside the, like, so that could be a thing that makes, makes it tease it a little bit. So say you are not allowed to, to be physical, like to, to use any kind of physical violence on each other or, 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 or on any humans inside of the space, for instance, mm-hmm. that's a way of saying there might be some humans we're not saying there is, but there might be. And that's like, you can, that's going to sit with you subconsciously and then you're, you know, 30 minutes yeah. in, you're going to have totally forgotten it and you're still going to be very surprised when somebody's standing there. That doesn't protect that dude from your bat though, if, yeah, if they that's... freak you out. But that's another question. Like maybe they know for a fact that they're across the room when you enter. If they're out of arm's reach, they know that you're not good, that you're going to see them before you're close. They have enough seconds. I, I still, I still even worry. Like, if you're going to surprise your players that way, okay. So now you have a, you have people clinging to a baseball bat, and they were just surprised by somebody, and they are, their, their, their fight or flight is, 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 is in place. What happens if one of my teammates accidentally surprises me? Accidentally jump scares me because frequently in games that have jump scares, mm-hmm. I have found that my True. teammates end up being the scarier things in the room than anything that was designed into the space. Because there are because once people get scared, your teammates start to go and you know they get you know nervous. And when people are nervous, they go and they react in ways that are surprising. So what happens when my teammate goes and surprises me, and I'm holding a baseball bat? Like that's yeah. the that's the thing that, like, I, I just think that there, there are, you know, in a no, you're environment, right. you're right. yeah, you're in right. an environment I'm... like an escape room where players just come in off the streets with their friends, their family, their colleagues, their friends, friends, they have no experience. They've been given a two minute briefing at most about how to conduct themselves in that space. I, I think that that's, I, I think that that's pushing into a dangerous territory where no, no, absolutely, something inevitably absolutely. will go wrong. Of course you're right. And I was thinking about this as an interaction problem. Like I was thinking about yeah. it in the terms of like, what would it take to yeah. be able to introduce that element? And like, is it possible? Yes, of course. Is it possible with a two minute briefing? No, no you know, probably not actually. Yeah. And is it possible to make safe in a situation where you don't know for a fact that the players aren't also armed with actual guns like no no yeah. I mean, that is not possible in, but, that, in, but that would be a, that would of course be uh also 
a challenge in the context of any kind of thing where, where, where the design is aiming to get your adrenaline going. And that's the other thing about jump scares. Like in my world, we don't work a lot with, when we work with horror, we don't work with horror in that way. We work more with psychological horror and the nuanced stuff. Because if people are up there in, in fight or flight, they can't, like they can't yeah. play anymore. Then they're just reacting. Um, and and when you get people into the kind of physical states where they're just reacting, you're losing them. So we're working pretty actively against that. And uh, and that's why I I was approaching this from the wrong uh, direction. I, I yield and I say that yeah. it is indeed quite as dangerous as you think. Yes. Yeah, that's that's my that's my read. Um, yeah. Finish on a lighter note. Um, the second time I met you was at uh, the Here Fest in, in San Francisco. And um, I had a was it though? Wouldn't it have been the Immersive Design Summit? Or immersive, sorry, Immersive Design Summit. That's what it was. It yeah. was the Immersive Design Summit. Um, and um, we had a conversation in like the speaker's lounge. And because um, I'd been thinking a lot about, you know, everything is a designable surface. And I had told you that we had been running these escape room tours and that we had we had challenges around level of experience that people had had. Um, styles of play that people were not used to playing with other with other people, um, mm-hmm. people from outside their play groups. And um, that was trying to figure out how to try and overcome some of that and how to how to bridge some of those gaps. And the output of the conversation that we had was that Lisa and I wrote a series of kind of rules and norms where we laid out, you know, nothing especially complicated, but some basic guidelines for how to interact with people. Um, how to deal with conflict, how to um, how to deal with certain semi-common issues that come up in escape room play and that teams might have different philosophies on if they thought about them at all. And we've, we've laid all that out and we just briefed people on it. And it had a really positive impact on the tours that we that we host. And it allowed us to um, to make people feel more comfortable more quickly. And so I just wanted to tell you that and thank you for that because... I knew we had pro- had a problem. It wasn't a massive problem, but I knew it could be better. And you really helped me think through that. Thanks. That makes me really happy to hear. And I feel like the key sentence that you say there said there was like if they really if they'd ever thought about it at all, because oftentimes we we haven't. And it's kind of it's related to the design tradition thing. But like a lot of the time, we, we can only see what we can see. You know, we can only predict behaviors that we that we are able to imagine that people would do. And those are super contextual and super culturally specific. And I don't know, it's been for me as well, like my big personally, my my big learning journey in the last like five years have been about starting to run uh, international, both like bringing LARPs to the U.S. and running them for U.S. players, but also working with like playing running events for for very international crowds with people with very different uh, frames of reference when it comes to this kind of thing. Because the range of problems that you get, and they're not big problems often, but the mm-hmm. range of challenges that occur, like the social, like the chafing that happens mm-hmm. to, to make things run smoothly, uh, will teach you so much more about the designs because you so thought true. you made something universal and wow, wow, you didn't at all. Uh, and it's not because the players are doing something wrong. That's the other thing. And that's like that teaches, it makes you a better designer if you expose yourself to participants who have different like uh, preconceptions than, than you do. But the, then you have to have that like gratitude. I almost like, I won't say humility, but like in a way it's super arrogant to as well to be like, I want to learn everything about this art form in the that is possible to humanly learn. And I will now expose myself to harder and harder things. But I mean, but it is like, that's the only way to learn. 
Um, so I, I do like, I, th- I think about it with gratitude that every time I have messed up so that the participants are having a challenging time with my thing, I am learning. Like the next time I'm going to be better. I, that's that's how we approach it all. And and yeah, yeah, to your point, like we've never had a problem on a tour that was born out of malice or deliberate bad behavior. Um, it, it's, it's always been from a, a you know, someone at, at worst being, you know, not being mindful, you know, or just having having just a different different expectation or frame of reference. And so. Yeah, it was it was just really helpful to to think about even even like the the culture of our tours, which we'd always thought about it partially in that way, but thinking about every aspect of it as as a thing that we could design. And then you're priming your participants to pay attention to each other and each other's mm-hmm. needs and things like exactly. that. And it's going to come into the rooms and they're going to be better at seeing each other. Like there's a lot of stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. A lot of the stuff we do in workshops are is like yeah. You know, you might ask the participants to move some chairs somewhere. It's, it would have been a much, lot easier for for my team to move the chairs, but I I I might want to get them to do things together. Like there, are, nothing is coincidental. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you learn gradually. Like, oh, like you can do this thing. You can do these things. People will move around the room to music that will automatically build trust. Like whatever. Like you can build a thousand little things. And it sounds like manipulation, but but it it actually also works if you're like you can be transparent about what you're doing, and it still works. That's the magic trick, I think. A lot of it is about again, like like how do we allow people to not, yeah, to to like move past whatever baggage or the things that they think are hindering them. They don't mm-hmm. need to be so like we want, we want to move past that somehow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like okay. we've spoken for another full episode, so maybe we should wrap it up. I was, I, I, uh, was just a, I was just bringing it to it, bringing it in for a landing. Johanna, thank you so much. Um, this has been such a delightful conversation. Um, I hope our Patreon supporters enjoyed this one. Um, yeah, yeah I, we definitely went into a lot of stuff that we don't normally go into. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now I realized that some of my like writing about just look to the principles of, of designing for for like opt in opt out uh, participation mm-hmm. and things like that have been gathered and published in different places online. So I can I can uh, put some links I, links I in love, the materials. Would love some of those links. We'll happily yeah, share yeah. those about. And um, well, thanks again. And uh, thanks. Catch everyone in the next episode.